This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael Glenn Moore. If you have an interesting life story and would like to appear on the show, please drop me a note at inacitylikeyours at gmail.com. Also, join our Facebook page at In a City Like Yours podcast to receive notices of new releases and other info. Now, please welcome today's guest. Hello, Michael. My name is Scott Hopkins. I'm calling from the city of Chula Vista, California, which is just south of San Diego, about five miles north of the Mexican border at Tijuana. I'm a retired elementary school teacher who uh, started way back in the 1970s and finished in the year 2009. So quite a span of years there in the classroom. Going back to my early days, I was a journalism major. I was doing really, really well with that. I was the editor of our high school sports uh, section in our newspaper. And that was kind of my, my career goal for a long time. I started umpiring Little League Baseball. Uh, and that gave me a second interest in, you know, teaching. And when I started off at San Diego State University, I was a journalism major and I was doing really, really well. Uh, I had straight A's in all the classes and some of the classes that the other students couldn't figure out and got stumped by, I was still cruising. And, uh, after a couple of years, I was offered the job as the news editor of the Daily Aztec newspaper. And along about that time, I changed majors. And the the story of how I changed majors is kind of interesting, I think, because had I not done that, my life would have taken a completely different turn, I believe. Um, when I got to a class called Advanced News Writing, we had a great professor. He was a legend in the journalism department at San Diego State. His name was Dr. James Julian, and they even have a scholarship named after him today. But he had written his own little uh, wire-bound textbook which was a compilation of field notes from reporters. It could have been things like a traffic accident, a house fire, uh, drowning at the beach, all kinds of these things that a local reporter might go out on. And he would walk into the class at 11 o'clock and just write a page number on the board and walk out. So our job was to look into his book at the notes on that page, decipher what the incident was about, the details of it, and then write the story, have it completely done, and on his desk at 11.50 when the class ended. So obviously it was designed to put us under pressure, and the very first thing about 90% of the students did back in those days was pull out cigarettes and light up. And I'm a post-asthma person, and uh, I was dying. I just I, The environment was just miserable. I did everything I could to get my stories in. I got great grades on the stories, but the environment made me think that that was what my career was going to be like, sitting in small rooms, breathing cigarette smoke. So that was the actual reason that I went down and changed majors. Um, the department chair was really surprised when I came in to do the change and uh, tried to talk me out of it. But I said, no, I was quite you know, uh, sure that I wanted to do this. And I went into a major of social sciences, a generic major, for the purpose of teaching. Um, had I stayed with the journalism, I uh, might have been able to achieve my life's dream, I think, which would become a sportscaster. And this was in the era right before cable TV appeared. And if, you, if some of your listeners think back, if they're as old as I am, I'm 70 years old, 
back in the 1970s, there was one professional football game on on Sunday, one baseball game on maybe on a given weekend day or whatever. And the television thing was very limited. After cable hit, and nowadays, as people are familiar with and are comfortable and used to, every single game is televised, at college, uh, professional, everything's televised. And the need for broadcasters has just skyrocketed. So some of those people are former professional players, and that wouldn't have been me, but I think I could have been one of those guys that made it by his knowledge of the sports and his ability to describe the action on the field and keep the viewers interested. And uh, I will never know if I could have done that or not. In the meantime, ironically, after I uh, retired from teaching, I went back to writing again. And I now am a contributor to a community newspaper uh, for the same high school that I went to as a student in San Diego named Point Loma High School. And I cover their sports, uh, interesting students, developments at the school, all kinds of uh, activities and things that go on around a modern high school. So I've kind of come full circle back to the journalism, but uh, with about a 35 year teaching career that interrupted it. Uh, no sports broadcasting, unfortunately, but uh, lots of interesting stories about today's kids that are growing up. So that's basically the, the quick story on how I got into, into teaching. Um, I went to San Diego State, like I said, and even though I changed majors, I still graduated in four years. And in those days, the California credential law said that if you did your student teaching as a graduate student, you were given a full lifetime credential that you never had to go back and update. If you didn't, you had to complete a fifth year of college during your first five years in the classroom. So that prevented me from having to do that after work classroom thing. I started at a higher salary and um, that was how I got my credential. Uh, I, my first teaching job was in the San Diego Unified School District, which is the second biggest school district in the state behind Los Angeles. And I was sent to a school in a minority community where they had known that the classroom was going to be empty. The teacher had left, but they didn't hire anybody to replace the teacher. They waited till school started and hired a sub who was me. Uh, it was a gifted class for sixth grade students. And after about four weeks, five weeks of school, one of the staff members was convinced into taking the class he left his class, somebody else took his class, but I was offered to stay on with an opening that came up. So I was there for a year. And at the end of the first year, what San Diego Unified did back then, every single first and second year teacher in the district, no matter if you were the best teacher in the school or whatever, all were pink slipped and basically cut loose. You're a free agent. and. Um, I was headed to Europe for a vacation that summer and I came back from Europe and the day I got back to Chula Vista Elementary School District called and asked if I wanted to sub over the summer in uh, what they call intercession classes, summer school classes, things like that. So I jumped at that and uh, that next September I got into a sixth grade class in Chula Vista where my career continued. Um, I was in Chula Vista, I was replacing a poor guy, well, not a poor guy, but I mean, a, a, a very popular teacher who was transferring schools over the summer. Uh, however, in the spring at his previous school, he'd been diagnosed with cancer. And um, they were concerned that he wasn't going to make it very much longer. His uh, life expectancy was quite short, but his family didn't want to tell him about that so they had me go over to his uh, home and sit down next to him at his bed and listen to his instructions on how to start the class off and how to behave the first, you know, weeks of school. And he looked at me and said, um, do you have a credential? I said, yes, I do, sir. And um, how old are you? And I said, I'm 23. And okay, I guess so. And he, he kind of like couldn't believe I was, you know, going to take his place but 
his wife and their friends actually carried this guy over to the classroom and set him down in a chair and he would tell them what color of bulletin board background paper to put up and how to arrange the desks and things like that for the opening of school. But unfortunately, he actually passed in about mid-October after the school year started. And I had started the class off in September and the school district was kind enough to write my new contract retroactive to the first day of school. And that gave me my seniority date. And uh, that date lasted the rest of my career until the year 2009. This was in 1973, so. Wow, 30 year career, that's, that's really something to have, to stay at something that long. You must've been really, very passionate about what you were doing. Well, I was, and um, my days at that first school in San Diego opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, the school was interesting. It was what they called naturally integrated in that it had one-third white, one-third black, and one-third uh, Hispanic students. So in talking to these kids, I noticed, of course, they love sports. They love the San Diego Chargers and the Padres, but a lot of these kids had never seen the stadium in San Diego. Um, they talked about the beach. They'd never been to the beach. And I kind of decided, wow, maybe that's something I can do to change a little bit. And so back then I started uh, trying to take small groups of kids off to see things like that and experience a little bit more of life. So I don't know if you could do that nowadays. There's a lot of paranoia about, you know, students, teachers, relationships, things like that. But mine were always, you know, above board, totally, uh, parents all notified what time we're leaving, what time we're coming back, the whole nine yards. And um, I took kids to San Diego State football, to um, hockey games at our sports arena, Padre baseball. Um, and eventually over the years, we worked it into a go out to dinner thing first, and then uh, tour part of San Diego <clears throat> that, uh, the kids had never been in where there was a 30, about a 35 story building we took them up in where they could view the city. And uh, we went over the Coronado Bridge into Coronado. Most of them had not been on the bridge. And just over the years, lots and lots of experiences for kids that they never otherwise would have had. And it paid great dividends. I mean, uh, I'm in touch with a number of my kids still. Uh, the first sixth graders I had in Chula Vista in 1973-74 are now 58 years old and that's that boggles a lot of people's minds because you know that means they're ARP members or you know basically almost senior citizens and uh, I'm still in touch with some of them yeah I'm, I'm 58 myself so I, I remember back in those days and what school was like back then of course well, that was before any of the uh, modern technology that we have today that makes things so much easier to learn I think for students uh, back then, it was it was pen and paper all the way. Uh, plus, I was dyslexic, so I had had a little bit of struggle there uh, with that. Uh, now, you taught? Uh, did you teach journalism, or did you teach English, or or what? Well, as an elementary teacher in California, we basically are responsible for everything, unless the school decides to you know divide things up and have one teacher teach several rounds of a certain subject to ease the burden on everybody. But we were responsible for everything: art, music math, PE, reading, everything was under our, our, you know, control responsibility, a, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That, I guess that makes it uh, to where it doesn't get uh, tiresome because you're always changing your approach to, to how you're teaching because you have to approach it in different ways for each subject matter. Um, so you taught for 30 years. Why don't you give us some highlights and maybe the the best and the worst that you that you've experienced? Because I'm know I'm sure you probably had some unruly uh, students and maybe some students who went well above the the effort and did really well. Uh, and you know it's a good place to brag brag on them now if you if you remember them and their name. Uh, but go ahead and let us know a little bit about uh, some of the hard things you went through and some of the some of your most proudest moments. Well, let's see. Let's do. You want to start off with a couple really interesting students um, that might be I've, those come to my mind a little quick more quickly um, at Rosebank School in Chula Vista uh, I was there 11 years I never should have left but they put a new principal into the school that just had no interest in the school and the school started to fall apart and the staff everybody transferred but 
including myself. But anyway, one year in uh, Chula Vista in Rosebank School, I had a young guy walk into class on the first day of school, and his name was Eli Ben Moshe, with a hyphen in his last name. Um, he was born in Israel. His family then moved to Mexico City, and then eventually to Chula Vista. So Eli spoke uh, Hebrew and Spanish, but no English. So back in that day, we didn't have any instructional aids or people to really help the uh, kids that much with their English. So I speak some Spanish and we put him next to, you know, a couple of kids that spoke Spanish fluently and off we went. And um, he picked things up very quickly. It, was, it, it didn't take long to see that he was a very intelligent young kid. But the way that I knew that he had really mastered his English was one day um, we used to let the kids play on, we had grass fields in Chula Vista. Most of the schools in San Diego have dirt and, you know, kind of decomposed gravel, whatever. And uh, we had grass, which was really nice. And we let the kids play football at recess and lunch with the caveat that, hey, as long as there's no arguments and you guys keep the game under control and things, then you're, you can do that. So one day after lunch, these kids would run up there and play football and come in just soaking wet, just, you know, sweating like crazy. And they, they're all ready to come back in the classroom, but there's an argument going on. Something about whether somebody had stepped out of bounds or crossed the goal line or whatever. And Eli was arguing with the kids in English. And I, I just knew at that moment, wow, he's turned the corner. He's actually able to, con, you know, converse with the kids. Uh, in English now, that's a major, major step. Well, Eli graduated from elementary school, went on to high school. Uh, by the way, I took a day off of work that year in sixth grade to go to his bar mitzvah. And um, he graduated from high school, didn't hear from him for a while. And one day in the mail came an invitation to a graduation ceremony for, I believe it was called the Pacific School of Optometry. And it was Eli Ben Moshe graduating. So we hooked up again. And basically, Eli bought an optometry practice here in San Diego, a part of San Diego where I grew up, as a matter of fact. And he is now my optometrist. And all my eye care and everything is in Eli's hands. My exams, my glasses, everything that I've ever you know, had is now being handled by one of my former sixth graders. That's a story that's pretty to me pretty amazing pretty hard to hard to have a lot of people be able to top one like that um there have been a lot of other kids that i've known real well uh i've been to several weddings i've been out to oddly enough to one funeral uh i've been present when uh one of them uh his wife was giving birth their first baby i've been invited to a number of things and um there's one family in particular uh, where I'm, my family is kind of scattered and not all in one place and of one mind, I guess you'd say. So I actually spend a lot of my holidays with the family of one of my early sixth graders. Uh, he was a kid that was a little bit, um, oh, he had a, had a tough life at home, let's put it that way. Uh, a stern father, um, some other issues in the family that were tough but he ended up uh, going to a police academy and putting himself through the academy at his own expense which normally the departments pay for you if you're already hired and he got hired as a police officer and um, I helped him through his academy when some of his assignments were tough gave him ideas about how to do some of his written work and things like that and uh, I've been on ride-alongs with him and all the departments he's worked in and uh He's now retired as a police officer after he was injured one time uh, doing some detective work. And he's now the security director of a uh, computer technology parts company up in the Los Angeles area and uh, doing really, really well. And uh, he and I are, are actually almost best of friends um, from all the years. I've got one kid though that uh, one of my former students started a restaurant up in North San Diego County called Death by Tequila. I think that's a, an interesting uh, name for a restaurant. And uh, I've had just all kinds of kids do all kinds of other things. One time I went to a play here in San Diego, a, um, a production of My Fair Lady. 
And I walked in and they gave us a program and I sat down and opened it up before the play started. And one of my sixth graders was playing the lead role of Maria, <laughs> I didn't even though I've seen her perform. And she had a beautiful, beautiful voice. Uh, in her high school, she went to a school of performing arts and she was named the um, outstanding performer at the school. And she now lives in Lake Tahoe. She has a son and for a number of years, she was an entertainer aboard cruise ships. She'd be part of the group that did uh, different shows every night on cruise ships. Her sister uh, was a swimmer and she went through a rough time in her life in which she um, kind of lost focus and uh, got into drugs and alcohol and things like that, but she recovered. <clears throat> and um, now as a swimmer in the master's division, uh, she's about 55 years old right now, but she's a swimmer in the master's division and she's in the International Swimming Hall of Fame and uh, an amazing swimmer. She has a company called the Aquatic Edge. Uh, her name is Carlin Pipes and she travels all over the world, literally uh, Dubai, uh, all over Europe, South America, all over the U.S., putting on clinics showing even competitive swimmers how to speed up their, uh, you know, cut time off their, uh, their races and things like that. Uh, that she's developed a technique that they will hire her to come and uh, present to groups and teams and other swimmers uh, because she has such a level of skill. So there are some, um, some kids I think that are probably somewhat remarkable uh let me uh, let me, let me uh bring in real quick that sure uh your your influence on children has been greatly respected i'm sure throughout your career in fact uh the publicist that i work with who gets me a lot of my interviews was one of your students steve joiner yes uh, so how, how was do you remember him and how he was as a youngster oh dear <laughs> and I'm laughing. When Steve first contacted me recently, I had to stop and think. You know, I, I think over the years, if I take the kids that were in my class and then kids in other classes, because I tried to kind of, you know, look around, see who else might need a little, you know, TLC or uh, something that might, you know, help them a little bit. Um, it took a minute to remember Steve, I'll be honest with you, and I would tell Steve the same thing. But uh, Steve was there for part of fifth grade and then all of sixth grade, as I remember. He moved into the school area. Um, Steve was, you know, uh, you know, another one of a bunch of great kids. I mean, basically, I looked back and there were few that were really hard to deal with or whatever. But I, part of that, I think, was my approach to the classroom and the way we handled our disciplinary thing and managed the classroom. But Steve was just another, you know, another smiling guy out there that uh, I think benefited from the time he spent with me. He tells me now how great an influence I had on him, which is wonderful and, uh, you know, wonderful to hear. One of the things that he's happiest about was that in San Diego <laughs> and uh, Chula Vista, we don't have it anymore, unfortunately, but we had a sixth grade camp program. And the school, all the sixth graders would go up to camp in the mountains in San Diego County and live for a week uh, in cabins with, you know, supervision and all these activities to learn about nature and um, art involved with nature and community living, the animals of the region, snakes, things like that. It was a, a great experience. They had all day hikes and uh, they ate all together in a big dining area and family style at tables and that type of thing. But anyway, when Steve's first year in my class, it was a fifth and sixth grade combination. And I didn't want to stay home. I wanted to go to camp. So I swung a deal where we asked the fifth grade parents, do you mind if your child goes to camp with us? And Steve's mom said, no, go for it. And so Steve went to camp as a fifth grader. And then he got to go again as a sixth grader. So he, that's, that's on one of the top of his list is uh, one of the great things about uh, his memories of school with my, uh, in my classroom so that's excellent i mean that's as a child to be able to experience like something like that like going to camp is always a highlight i think in in any child's experience or in their life so far 
I'm uh, sure it made him as a fifth grader feel kind of special, you know, to go with the sixth graders. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm, now I'm sure you've had some difficult times in your career since you've, you know, th over 30 years. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what you've gone through with maybe students cheating or uh, any, having to break up any fights or things like that that you may have experienced? Well, I'll tell you. <sighs> There, there, were, there are some kids, you know, that are more disciplinary problems than others. Most of those kids I didn't have trouble with. I did have probably the worst difficulty I had one year was um, a girl in the class who was kind of a uh, troublemaker ringleader type thing that got a couple of the other kids behind her and she kind of uh, had this little mini gang in the classroom. And that was tough. I to deal with that uh, her in fact her mother was a teacher and I felt I should be able to solve everything that happened in the classroom so when her mom came in for a conference one time to discuss some of the issues we're having the mom said well I will be glad to take her out of the school and put her somewhere else and I said no no I said you go, you go ahead and leave her here we'll, we'll work things out but you know just let you know that a lot of days it's tough trying to deal with you know some of the things that she's orchestrating and all that um i had a, a philosophy with the kids that that prevented a lot of that stuff um i i had the the concept that all the kids were equal and you know kind of like now today we're talking about all all lives matter and in this case it was all the kids are equal um, I tried to make them see that every one of them was gifted in some way. Because, you know, they used to have classes for the gifted kids or they'd come pull out kids to go to gifted class. And the other kids would say, Mr. Hopkins, why don't we get to go to that? And I would explain to them that, unfortunately, these are kids who are identified as gifted based on a, a test, a written test. You are gifted, but in a way that apparently they haven't discovered yet and maybe you haven't discovered your gift may be in art your gift may be an auto mechanic your gift may be in fly fishing but whatever your gift is you might not have found it yet and that's part of your job in life is to find out what those gifts are and work on those but also find out what your weaknesses are and work on those as well so that you end up as a well-rounded person that doesn't really have any areas that you feel uncomfortable with whether it be writing or reading or, or math or whatever uh, skill it might be or just general knowledge. So we did that and also um, everything in the class we did was please and thank you. Uh, I told them that goes for me as well as you. Um, I'm, you know, I'm the teacher and you know, I expect to be respected of course, but I'm gonna speak to you like a young adult, not like a child. Uh, it's never gonna be boys and girls. Uh, I talked to everybody like they were they were intelligent young adults, and that made that went a long way. The other thing that I did that was really really a big factor when people would ask me how the class would run so well and the kids got along so well and they would obey other teachers on the campus so well, I, I boiled it down is really simple. I took an interest in every kid's life something that sometimes their parents didn't even have time to do at home with all the modern you know, both parents working, everybody's under stress and all that. If um, one of the kids said that they had a little league game after school, oh, that sounds really great. Uh, hey, well, good luck. The next day I'd make a point of walking over and pulling out a chair when the kids were quiet doing something and sitting down saying, hey, how'd the game go last night? Did you get, did you get to go, uh, did you get up at bat? Did you get a hit? Oh, okay, that's great, hey. And that's, that's a lot of that type of thing went a long, long way with kids that they knew that you knew about them out of class, you cared about them, you cared about their life, and you wanted to kind of see how everything was going to turn out. Um, so there weren't a lot of negatives. Um, there were some other things we did that, that solved some problems. And this isn't a problem maybe like you described a moment ago, but once in a while there would come up a situation where maybe somebody was getting teased a lot and one of the girls that was getting teased 
Uh, her name was Aubrey Franklin. I still remember that very clearly. And she lived out in a part of Chula Vista, an area called Benita. And it was an area where they had larger properties and they were allowed to have horses. So Aubrey had a horse and Aubrey went into competitions where they'd jump and she wore the, the complete riding outfit and all that. And I think the kids were probably a little bit jealous. And so she got teased and they'd make horse sounds when she walked by and paw at the ground like they were horses and stuff. And it was something that had hurt her, you know, for several years at school. So we set up, I talked to her and I talked to her mom. We set up a deal where they brought her horse to school one day in the trailer. Like I mentioned, we had grass playgrounds. So we went out on the playground. She and her mom went out early and they set up a couple jumps and she went in and put her, her outfit on and we had invited all the classes that wanted to come out and watch you know let them know hey we're gonna have a horse jumping demonstration at like you know 9 30 whatever we had about two or three hundred kids out there watching and she got on her horse and rode around the, the grass and jumped the horse and did all this stuff and afterwards the kids went up and were all petting the horse and that ended the teasing that ended all the all the whatever she'd experienced before kind of just evaporated so things like you know there's ways to solve problems like that they aren't always easy but you know you put a little thinking into it and do a little talking and somehow most of them can be solved and you just don't have as many of the the angry kids the ones that are difficult yeah that's awesome that uh the solutions that you could come up with to, to re, uh, alleviate uh, either bullying or children being picked on and so forth. I know that bullying is such a big thing right now. I mean, it's always been around. You know, back when I was in school, I was bullied. But uh, it seems like it's getting even worse because now it's moved over from school to the Internet to so many other realms. So it's not like a student can come home and then the bullying stops because they're away from that um, environment it's, it's now it's where they get bullied at school they come home and they get bullied on the internet by the same bullies who are you know uh treating them badly at school well um, same boy same boys or girls uh the girls can probably be even meaner than the boys uh because they tend to go for looks and clothing and appearances and uh family resources and anything they can to tear a kid down and uh I just can't even imagine how difficult that can be nowadays. We did something that was kind of neat that um, in our classroom that had, that kind of spoke to that a little bit too. Um, I have a master's in counseling, so I'm really interested in talking about feelings and about you know, the way we deal with things and that type of thing. So I came up with this idea where I bought a bunch of posters. They were about 18 by 24 inches. And I've got a couple of plexiglass frames for them that I could change out real quickly. And every Wednesday, I'd put a poster up in the classroom, a new poster. And the kids would copy the poster down on a little assignment sheet that I had. And I'm sure the parents, some of them probably hated this. Some of them probably loved it. They were asked to go home and discuss the quote on the poster with their parents, if the parents were willing to discuss with them and ask the parents, how did this quote affect your life? Talk to the parents about how it's affecting their life, back and forth. And on Thursdays, they came back and they wrote in their journals what they had learned about that quote. Now, if the parents had said, I'll share this with you, but please don't share it with your class. We told the kids, you need to respect that. Don't share anything that your parents asked you not to. And on Friday morning, after you know we got the day started, we push all the desks in the class back to the walls and everybody would sit in a big circle and kids would share what they'd learned about the quote. And then I would model in the early part of the year ways to ask them questions and ways to challenge what they said or whatever without attacking to, 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 to give feedback in a non-threatening way. And we had some really, really great discussions during those times that were, uh, very the kids learned a lot about their parents that they might have not have ever learned for years or ever uh the kids learned from each other uh they learned that the experiences they're going through were the same as what other kids were going through um many many things came out of that <clears throat> excuse me one um a simple idea for a poster would be they had a picture on one of this 
cartoon character, a, a man's head from the side, and his nose was a big spigot, and there was yellow liquid coming out, and the quote said, one that everybody's heard, <clears throat> said, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. So I talked to the kids and said, you know, how has life given you lemons so far? What are some of the lemons that, that have happened? Well, for a lot of kids, it was divorce, moving when they didn't want to, uh, somebody in their family died, whatever the case it was. I said, I'd like you to go home and talk to your parents because they've had lemons in their life too. If you don't know about these, ask them what some of their lemons were, some of the things that have happened to them that were disappointing or heartbreaking or upsetting. But the really important part is ask them how they made lemonade out of it, how they made um, a solution, uh, a way to deal with it, a way to be at peace with it, whatever it might be, uh, to move forward and in their life and, you know, go on. <clears throat> so, so those kinds of discussions started some really, really neat talking. And these are sixth graders, too. One thing that I had noticed over the years is nobody ever asked the kids how they felt about something. It was always a right and wrong answer, but never, how are you feeling about this? What you, what's your response to this? How do you, you know, is this fair? Is this unfair? Whatever the case might be. So with all these things together we've talked about, it was mainly the class would turn into a family of 32, uh, myself and 31 kids. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had some really, really great experiences. So the chance, the need to have to play tougher, you know, hardball against some kids was hardly ever happened. I mean, they, there was a good feeling in the classroom and uh, they were the kind of kids that ended up going out of the school helping other people without being told and just, you know, pitching in because they knew it was the right thing to do. How, how difficult was it for you to finally retire after being in the field of education for so long? Uh, did you feel like you lost a part of yourself or was it, uh, was it at a point where you were ready for it and looking forward to whatever, you know, happens next in your, in your life? Well, I'll tell you what happened. And this, this, for your listeners, this will give them a good idea of what the education field can be like. And I don't share this story with everybody, but after I'd been in this for about 25 years, we had a change of superintendents in the school district. I'm not going to say her name, but they brought in this lady who subscribed. I was told she subscribed what she called the, oh, I can't, can't remember the name, the something theory where you come into an organization and you blow it up. And as the parts fall back to the ground, they fall into a better pattern than it was before. There's some name for that. So she was all about changing the school district and one of her things was that seniority, which was our criteria for virtually everything, should be eliminated because people that had been around a long time were less worthy, less worthy, tired, not as effective anymore, and things like that, which I, of course, strongly disagreed with. So that seniority used to be the primary determining factor in transfer, for example. So if they had a, uh, an opening at a school and 10 people applied for it, They'd look at all the, the years of hire date and the, old, the person with the most seniority automatically got the job. Bingo, it's their job. Uh, but she wanted to change that. So one day I was outside of a, of a uh, school at the Halloween carnival and I was playing Mr. I don't know, Mr. Host or whatever. And I had this electric megaphone and I was, you know, calling people, you know, come on over to the cakewalk. That kind of stuff and she comes to the carnival and walks up and she says hello mr hopkins and i said oh hello doctor whatever her name was and she got started off a conversation don't you think that seniority is a terrible thing and a bad way to do to handle transfers and things like that and i was very polite i said well doctor i said i'm sorry but i said i think that seniority is is the best way to handle these situations. And I'll tell you why I said myself and a number of the teachers of this school have many, many years of, of experience, but I think most of them 
bounce out of bed every morning with the same enthusiasm, the same energy level, the same and more expertise possibly than a lot of the younger, newer teachers. And to say that because somebody is senior is now ineffective or whatever, that, that I don't agree with that. I think that the, the senior teachers oftentimes are some of your very best. Well, that was the wrong answer. And from that point on, and I, I say this in all sincerity, I might as well have worn a sweatshirt with a target on the back. Um, she, she held grudges and she took one out on me. <clears throat> and um, it got to the situation, Michael, where you could be an excellent teacher at a school doing a great job and everything going smoothly, very effective. But if you didn't agree with her, you were terrible. And if you were a poor teacher, you know, I'm ineffective and things weren't going real well, your class was kind of out of control and all this, but you agreed with her, then you were a shining star. It was a complete reversal or a complete scattering of the of evaluations based on whether you agreed with her views on seniority or other things that she was trying to push. And basically, I was transferred down to the school district office the last several years of my career and put into an, uh, <clears throat> a department where there was really nothing to do. And the things that there were to do, I was not trained in, so it was very awkward for me. And my last several years in the district were not enjoyable, uh, were not something I can look back on and say that I uh, look back with great memories at all. Uh, my best memories came the 31 or so years I was in the classroom where there was direct interaction with the kids the students and that that energy that happiness that um, environment every day that was so stimulating for me and I hope for them too so that that's you know that happens out there to teachers all over the United States all the time uh, it's a game of politics sometimes and <clears throat> the person with the most power wins and uh, sad to say that's that's how my career ended well, what is your passion now, now that you've retired and you, you have probably have more time to yourself? What is, uh, what really floats your boat now? Oh, good question. I do a lot of photography, uh, which I started doing eighth, as an eighth grader myself. Um, I bought a um, developing kit at Sears and a $40 enlarger, and I started printing photos, black and white photos in my parents' house as an eighth grader. Uh, I still take photos uh, for the newspaper that I um, contribute to. Uh, so photography has remained uh, special. <clears throat> Travel is also special. And probably the biggest thing in my life right now, if I really had to sit down and, and think about it, is that uh, about 25 years ago, I started going down to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. And in doing so, I was with a couple other teachers and we met an eight-year-old kid down there that was diving in a river for coins that people were throwing out of a restaurant. And we befriended that kid. I kept going back. My other teacher friends didn't. And I've become a part of their kind of family, so to speak. Um, they live south of Puerto Vallarta, about 15 miles south, off of a dirt road that just goes off into the hills and they have an extended family i'm sorry extended family of about probably 40 people that live in the puerto vallarta area and when i go down to the puerto vallarta, puerto vallarta now i spend a lot of my time with their family in their homes uh taking them places now the event that just happened just yesterday um i did this uh one of the uh boys in the family young men uh, gave birth, his wife gave birth to their second child two weeks ago, and it was a young boy, uh, and he was born with club feet, if you know what those are. And so they're just beside themselves. They're not working, they have no insurance, they have no income whatsoever. So they went to a doctor who gave them a quote of how much it would cost to cast his feet over the next uh, several months and try and correct his, his feet. And yesterday I withdrew the money and uh, sent it down to them via Western Union. 
um, to Puerto Vallarta so they can start getting their son's, you know, feet corrected. Um, also in that same family, for the last three plus years, I've been putting one of the really, really neat young guys there uh, in, through a university. Uh, he'll be the first person in the entire extended family ever to go to university. So that's exciting. I'm real happy about that. And uh, he's getting closer and closer to graduation. Uh, so I'm always excited to, you know, help him. I send him money every semester to pay his fees. And uh, so th that's kind of a passion right now, I think, is my extended family down in Puerto Vallarta. Yeah, it's something about teaching. It's it's more than just teaching somebody. It's, it's a willingness to help somebody grow. And it seems like that's something that you've carried on past your teaching days and have continued to experience with the people you meet that you just want to help in some way if you can. I think that's very admirable. Oh, thanks. Um, these people are especially interesting. Um, in the time I've known them, about 25, 26 years now, they've lived in four different houses, but the, the, the original family, a mom, a dad, and three kids, uh, are now in their fourth house, but it's the first house they've ever actually owned. Uh, they bought a little tiny lot, built on it. Uh, they've expanded it over the years. But even now to date, they have no telephone, no car, no running water. Um, they actually have a TV with a satellite dish, of all things, that one of the boys saved up some money years ago and, and bought. But basically, it's a very simple life for them. Uh, they don't have even the things that we have. They do all have cell phones. I think that's interesting, but there's no signal except down right near the highway. So we communicate when they when they walk down by the highway. We can send messages back and forth and photos and all that. But um, the mo rest of the time, they're out in the uh, out in a little dirt off this little dirt road, and you know sometimes dinners cooked over an open fire and. Things like that. Tortillas are handmade and a very interesting lifestyle, but they're the nicest people you ever want to meet. They're down to earth, um, wonderful people. They're good people. Um, when we first met this kid as an eight-year-old, one of the things he did, the other teachers that were with me were, were ladies, three, uh, two other ladies, and he treated them like he was a professional butler or something. I mean, the way he, he took us on a little tour of the area as an eight-year-old and would extend his hand when there was a little water to walk through or things like that to offer the ladies. And uh, it's just struck me like something is special about this kid. And uh, it's because he's in a family that they taught the kids from the time they were young to be polite and to help people and uh, go out of their way. And they're, they're, just, they're great people. I mean, I just... Now, can't say enough about them and, you know, how hard they work and how, you know, much they care about things. Another story about them, just real quick, is that they took ice cold showers and baths for all these years up until about nine months ago. Um, I also bought for them a small hot water heater. And up until then, uh, even when it was the dead of winter, and I guess it, got, it gets pretty cold down there at times, they were taking buckets of, you know, little plastic buckets of water and pouring it over their head, ice cold water, to take showers for years and years and years. And for the first time, the last, you know, nine months or so, they can go in and turn on the water and it's warm. And now they're taking warm showers for the first time ever. So it's a great feeling to be able to do that with, you know, some of my money. And I don't think I can think of a better way to spend it. And I'm uh, just happy to be able to do that for them. I only go down twice a year, usually, but um, it's just really special. Really, uh, uh, it's kind of one of my passions, I guess you'd say, too. Okay, to close this out, why don't you let somebody, who, uh, say, for instance, somebody is thinking about going into education. They're in college right now, and they're uh, considering going doing an education career. What uh, nuggets of wisdom would you impart to that person and to kind of help them guide their way through the education system? Oh, good question. A tough one too, Michael. Um, the teaching profession is greatly different now than it was when I was going through. Um, 
I think, my opinion, a lot of the teacher's creativity has been taken away. Um, it's like you say, it's a technological world now, but a lot of people have tried to legislate education. You know, legislators who've never been in the classroom try to make rules and policies. And I think now the teaching is regulated to where they tell you what to teach, how to teach it, and when to teach it. And it's almost um, like as a teacher, you're a deliverer of instruction rather than a teacher, if that makes sense. Um, there still is the interaction with the students. And for that reason, I think teaching will always be a good profession. You'll always have the chance to change lives, to uh, steer people in better directions, to uh, give them motivation to reach higher goals, that type of thing. But uh, <clears throat> the actual teaching part may be difficult. Now, the technology part is amazing. Um, they have these, uh, in the high school where I, that I cover, they have a, what they call a Promethean board in their classrooms now, which is a computer screen, the size of a movie screen, a computer screen, but it's also a white board that teachers can write on. So for example, if they're talking about, um, oh, say um, President uh, Reagan's speech at the Berlin Wall years ago, well, most of the high school kids weren't even alive then. They don't know what, they're, what the teachers are talking about that much. All the teacher has to do is go on his computer and type in a couple of keystrokes, and boom, there's President Reagan up on the screen delivering the speech. They can hear it. They can see it. They can feel the, the you know, what, what it's like to hear, uh, the mood, everything. And it's right there for them. So there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity for kids to learn nowadays. Uh, I just hope that I would just hope that there's still enough leeway, enough wiggle room for the teachers to be creative and do their own things as well. That's probably about you know, the best I can say. I, I still recommend teachers going, you know, young people going to the profession. It's still worthwhile. Uh, they used to always say that the best three things about teaching are July or June, July, and August, but um, it's still a, a, an honorable profession and one that. I think would leave most people feeling good about themselves. Hopefully they'll make enough money that they can afford a house and a car and, you know, some nice things in it because the starting salaries, even though they've been legislated up to a higher level, are still low by community standards, most community standards. a shout out to Ben, the editor of the show. Ben also has a podcast called Two Marks and a Spark. You can find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check it out. You won't be sorry.